topic this week out of Genesis chapter 4, mercy on Cain. Starting verse 3, in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And we've looked already in past weeks a little bit about God accepting Abel's offering and not Cain's offering, and what is the acceptable offering, the acceptable worship that the Lord has. And uh, we looked a little bit at why God accepted Abel, and uh, we'll look in another week of why God did not respect Cain, and those past ones you'll be able to see on shalomadventure.com. But this week we're going to focus on God's interaction with Cain. And so verse 5, Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Now who was he angry at? Who is Cain angry at? God. Who should he have been angry at? Himself. Himself. <laughs> exactly. Right. But he was angry at God because he brought the wrong offering and did not. Uh, and so God did not respect his offering, nor did he respect Cain. Now, the typical reaction to that, or for human to human, or typical human nature reaction to that would be getting angry back, right? So if someone's angry at you, you get angry back at them. So let's take a look at how God responds to Cain's anger at him. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at your door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So God's reaction to him being angry, Cain being angry at him, is not to get angry back, but God's response is to speak to him, to talk about the situation, and try and work out a resolution for the problem. And so he brings up the topic, he faces the topic uh, head on, and then he gives a wonderful, it can be looked at as a promise or a command, either way, but you should rule over it. Because if you look at it as a command, all of God's commands are promises. Whatever he commands us to do, he gives us the power to do it. With the command comes the power to follow through with it. And so he's promising him, you will be able to rule over this. You don't have to be filled with anger the rest of your life. You don't have to be controlled by it. You can have victory over the anger. That's a wonderful promise. And then all he has to do is do well. Now, what did Cain need to do to be able to do well? What would he have to do to do well? God's telling him, if you do well, you'll be accepted. What would he have to do to do well? Obedience? No. Because Cain does not have the ability to be obedient. <laughs> That's the problem. He was trying to be obedient in his own way. <laughs> Again, originally he came to God, he brought an offering to God, he wasn't an atheist, he wasn't denying God, but he wanted to do it in his own way, in his own strength. What he needs to do is surrender. What he needs to do is confess. What he needs to do is repent. And the way to confess and repent and to surrender is to die. And God has 
spiritually, right? And though God has produced a substitute to die in our place, represented by the Lamb. Yeshua being it, represented in Cain's time by the Lamb. And so what he would need to do would be to bring a lamb sacrifice. But not just bringing a lamb sacrifice, but the whole attitude of why he would need to bring the, the lamb sacrifice, not just because God likes to taste the lamb, but because it represents Cain's death to anger, Cain's death to selfishness, Cain's death to sin, Cain's death to self-will. That's why the right offering was not just better fruit, but the right offering was a blood offering. And that's what was lacking. And that's what was lacking in Cain's life. The surrender to God, the dependency on God, the seeking out and acknowledging of his own need of atonement to be made at one with God. Because Cain, as all of us, was born separated from God. Born carnal, needed to come back to God. And so we cannot just overcome anger just by be happy. Don't worry. Be happy. You know, that doesn't work, you know, because we don't have the power to do it. We need the Lord to transform us, to change us so that then by his power, his spirit living us, we can rejoice in the Lord always. And so how does Cain react to this wonderful offer? You can rule over it. You should rule over it by doing well. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So instead of talking with God, he goes and talks with his brother. <laughs> and when he can't take it out on God, his anger, he takes it out on Abel, his brother. Why? Because Abel was righteous and Cain's deeds were evil. And so out of jealousy and out of uh, conviction, right? That's why people, when we're living in an unrighteous state, we get angry at those who are living in a righteous state because it brings conviction to us. It shows us that it is possible by God's grace to do what is right. And when we are resistant to that, refusing God's power, then uh, we get angry at those. And since he couldn't get at God, he gets at Abel, right? And, you know, we're no different when we're in our carnal nature, following the passions of our hearts and the lust of the flesh, whoever is, we seem to think is weaker at that moment, we take out our anger on. Right? And so uh, if we can't get at God, Satan can't get at God, so he attacks us. We can't get at God, we can't hurt God, so we hurt other people. Uh, we, we can't get back at our boss, we can't yell at our boss because we'll get fired, so we take it out on someone else and, you know, yell at them on the ride home or, or uh, take it out on our spouse when we get in the house or on the kids or kick the cat. You know, whatever we think is a weaker that we can take out our anger upon when we feel we can't take it out upon the person we are choosing to be angry against. And that's what Cain does. Again, typical carnal nature, typical natural thing to do. That's why he needed to be born anew. That's why he needed to be born again. Same with all of us. Because the natural thing is to get angry, and if we can't manifest that anger on one person, we'll take it out on someone else. And that's what he does. So, he's, God has poured out his love upon Cain, brought him into this world, set forth an example 
through his parents of the right sacrifice, clothed him with the garments of the animals, clothed his parents anyway, and thus continued on, no doubt, and gave an example through his brother Abel, and yet he brings the wrong sacrifice in rebellion against God and resistance to God's ways, and God does not accept it. God lets him know this is not acceptable. And then Cain responds by getting angry at that. God responds by showing mercy, talking to him, offering him the promise to help him, encourage him, guide him, put him in the right direction again. Cain responds by getting angry and killing one of God's children. So how does God respond to that? How would you respond to someone killing one of your children? How does God respond? The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So God responds by talking with Cain again, going to Cain. Instead of just saying, I know what you did, you dirty dog. He says, where is Abel your brother? You know, he asks him a question as if he doesn't know. Drawing him out, drawing him to confess in love and in mercy and in kindness, not with condemnation, but with love, coming to him and offering him the ability to fess up. And Cain, he responds with denial and a lie. I don't know. Now, he should have known what God was doing because this is the same thing that God did to his parents. And, you know, during Bible study time, they only had three chapters, right? So I guess, you know, Cain must have heard this story over and over again. You know, we sinned and God came and said, where are you? He knew where we were, but he was calling us out of the bush. I think I had to hear that story like every third day, right? Yeah, so twice a week, the same Bible story, right? You know? so, so God does the same thing to Cain. And uh, Cain doesn't catch on, he doesn't go where he lies, as if God wouldn't know what he did. And so God says, again, how does God respond to that, to the lie? God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And so God's still entreating him, still staying engaged with him, doesn't turn his back on him, so in not respecting Abel, Cain's sacrifice in the beginning didn't mean he rejected him totally flat out. He's staying engaged with him. This is time after time after time we're seeing he's resisting God and rejecting God's love, mercy, and every attempt God is giving to draw him onto himself with the gift of repentance. And so when he didn't willingly confess on his own, God brings out the evidence. His blood is crying out. Hey, your brother's blood, Abel's blood is crying out from the ground. I can hear it. I know what you did. What have you done? Still saying, tell me more. I know it all, but I want you to tell me. Giving you an opportunity, another opportunity to confess and be cleared of the guilt. Because if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Cain has been resisting confessing because that's again a sign of repentance and surrender, an acknowledging of guilt, and then an acceptance of the atonement 
for the substitute for the forgiveness. And Cain hasn't been willing to do that. But God continues to draw him out, to draw him out. Now, he could, he could threaten him. Oh, and if you don't, I'm going to get you. I'm going to burn you. And I'm gonna, you're going to be in pain forever and ever. He could do that, but he doesn't do that. He uses love because why do we love God? What does the Bible say? Because he first condemned us. Because he first yelled at us. Because he first threatened us. Now, we love God because he first loved us. And here in chapter 4 of Genesis, we're seeing how God's doing that. By drawing, by drawing, by talking to him. Now, you might not hear God's voice like Cain heard, but through circumstances, situations, through messages, through, through the Bible, through sermons, through reading of godly books, God uses those things to draw us and to bring conviction upon us. And he speaks to us. Through blessings and through calamities, he's trying to get our attention. Just like he's trying to get Cain's attention. Now, what would be the just thing for God to do at this point? What would be the biblically, biblical, following the law thing to do for God to do at this point? To execute Cain, right? He murdered. God told Adam and Eve, if you sin, you will die. And later on, punishment for murder is stoning death. And so God would be fully justified in taking Cain out even before this. But he's continuing to plead with him to give him an opportunity in long-suffering mercy. And so God says to him, tell me what you did. The voice of your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Now, if you are, now you are cursed from the earth which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be in the earth. Now, is this a punishment or is this mercy? How would you look at this? If, you, if, this, if God said this to you, if someone said this to you, if your boss said this to you, you're not going to work here anymore. I'm not going to give you any more references. You're not going to be able to get another job anywhere. I'm going to, your name is going to be dirt everywhere you go. You're out of here. Would that be judgment or would that be mercy? Just judgment or mercy? Uh, justice with mercy. Ah, that's good. That's right. That's right. But it's not full judgment, right? It's justice with mercy. Because again, true judgment, what Cain deserved, the punishment that he really deserved was death. And so God in mercy lets him continue to live on. Why? Well, it's a story for us to preach on, right? It's always an example. So it can be an example for us. To give him another opportunity. That's right. Why? Why would God want to give him another opportunity? Because he loves him. Because God loves Cain. God loves Cain in spite of Cain's continual rejection. God loves Cain in spite of his murder of Abel. God loves you. God loves me. 
And God loves those who've hurt us. Right? Why do the, only the good die young? <laughs> it's because uh, maybe God's done with us, right? We're sealed with him, and if he doesn't have any more purpose for us here on this earth, you can say, well, you can just rest in peace and take a nap until the resurrection. But the wicked, they've got to continue to live on longer, right? So another question, why do the wicked continue to live on? Why do they prosper? Because God is giving them another opportunity after opportunity and after opportunity to come to him. And that's what God is doing here for Cain. Again, justly, he could have him executed, but he doesn't. He lets him live on. Yes, under justice, yes, with some justice, doesn't allow him to continue to live in the house, right? Which is wise. He's not, God's not codependent. <laughs> he doesn't want Adam and Eve to be codependent and let them stay there and kill another kid and you know, cause more problems and continue the abuse. So puts him in a safe area away from the family, but continues to show mercy and love towards him. And so he sends him off as a vagabond. And so this is tremendous mercy again. Mercy after mercy after mercy after mercy we've seen God manifesting towards Cain. So how does Cain respond to this wonderful, loving demonstration of mercy? Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that if anyone finds me, they will kill me. It's all about him. Yep. Poor, poor me. Right? Victim, victim, victim. Right? You know? And that is so typical human nature. Right? We do something bad and we get caught. Oh, I'm a victim. Oh, it's all a victim. It's society's fault and it's this person's fault and my parents' fault and the boss's fault and everyone else's fault. We're a poor victim. Right? Everyone else is bad, but we're a poor victim. Right? It goes all the way back. This victimhood attitude goes all the way back to Cain, all the way back to chapter 4, if not before that. Poor, poor me. Right? This is too much for me. I can't bear it. The punishment is too great. I can't bear it. What about Abel? You killed him. <laughs> you know, is that too much of a punishment? Right? You can't bear being uh, banished, and he was supposed to bear being killed? Pretty uh, unbalanced scales here that he thinks so highly of himself or so weak of himself, he can't bear uh, living while Abel has to bear being dead. While his parents have to bear losing both children. But all he's concerned about is himself. More than I can bear. And who is he blaming? God. You have driven me out this day. Did God want him driven out? No. That's why he'd been talking to him. That's why he told him, you don't have to stay angry. You can overcome this. That's why he came to him, trying to get him to confess. Because God didn't want him to have to be banished. It was Cain who wanted to be banished. And those who will not be in heaven won't be because God doesn't want them there. It's because they've demonstrated in their lives and in their choices that they would not be happy there. If they don't want to surrender to God here, how on earth are they going to be happy in heaven where the whole thing is all about surrender to God? If they don't want to worship God here, how are they going to be happy in heaven when everything is worshiping God there? They don't want to rejoice here, how are they going to be happy there when it's all 
rejoicing in the love of God. And so in mercy, even then, God won't allow them to be there and be miserable. <laughs> so the mercy of God continues, endures forever, even upon the wicked. But still justice doesn't allow him into the Garden of Eden, doesn't allow him into Adam's family, won't allow him into heaven. Be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. He can't handle that. Too much for him. He should be thankful to be alive. And so how does God respond to this ungrateful brat? The Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. So again, even with this, God's showing mercy. Okay, you're afraid of getting killed? I'll put a mark on you so no one will kill you. I'll put a watch over you. I'll put angels over you. They will guard you. No one will be able to kill you. And if anyone even tries, there'll be vengeance on them sevenfold. I'm going to have my hand still upon you. I'm going to be watching over you. Now hold to greater judgment anyone who tries to do anything to you. Wow. After Cain killed Abel, God saying, you're so important to me, I cherish you so much, that there'll be a sevenfold vengeance on anyone who tries to hurt you. Wow. The mercy and love of God. And it's not where the story ends, but it's where that story ends for tonight. <laughs> we'll get more into Cain in another week. And I will continue to focus on the mercy of God. The Lord is, Numbers 14, verse 18, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. He's long-suffering, abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity, but he's balanced. There's justice still. And so he manifested love, continually manifesting his love, continually drawing us, continually drawing others, giving them free choice. Gave Cain free choice to kill Abel. Continuing to manifest mercy. Because Abel's death is not the end. Abel has the righteous Abel. He has the assurance of heaven forever. So God continues to pour out his mercy upon this world. But there will be a judgment day. Will not clear the guilty forever. And today, we have basically two versions being taught in most places of God. One that he's so wishy-washy that everyone gets to go to heaven. Every funeral, everybody's in heaven. Everything, oh, everyone, everything is good. Overlooking everything. God's just merciful and loving and loving and loving and loving. And then the other is that God is so harsh that he gives us these commandments that are impossible to keep in our own and they are impossible to keep in our own strength, but they just stop it. They're impossible to keep, but he gave it to us anyway. This harsh taskmaster 
who punished people for billions and billions and billions of years for 90 years of rejecting him. So we've got these two distorted pictures of God. And the truth is right here in Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. He's long-suffering, abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But no means clear as the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the children to the third and fourth generation. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 10, the, Lord, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are therein will be burned up. All these things will be dissolved. Look for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And so why are we still here? Why are we still on this earth? Why hasn't God brought the new heavens and new earth yet? Why hasn't Yeshua returned yet? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but he's long-suffering. He's merciful, abundant in mercy and forgiveness of sin and transgression. He doesn't want that any should perish. And so he's allowing the wicked to continue to live on so that they have opportunity to come to repentance. And what are they waiting on? They're waiting to see a demonstration of God's love and mercy. They're waiting for us to bring them the message of God's mercy and love. Not a distorted picture of God, this merciful, merciful, or this tyrannical, angry monster, but a merciful, balanced God who loves them and draws them, who seeks them out, who brings them messages of love, who's not easily offended, but who continues to try to reach them with God's love. Doesn't take no for an answer, doesn't take rejection personally, but seeks them out, putting them first, sensing their need of heaven, their need of God, their need of the love of God, and caring for them. That's what God has demonstrated here towards Cain as our example. As the Messiah has come, and demonstrated it in his life and death for us. And God, by his power, can live in us if we, as we surrender to him, surrender our selfishness, surrender our indifference to others, our lack of love for others, our comfortableness here, and allow God to fill us with his spirit to go forth and to reach the lost for his kingdom. Psalm 85, verse 10, mercy and truth have met together. 
righteousness and peace have kissed. There's the beautiful picture of God. This balanced picture of God. He's merciful, and yet he's also able to maintain truth. He's righteous, the right, right and wrong. He's right, able to do right, able to do justice, but also peace. Blended together, kissing each other. And where do we see that manifested? Like the picture here in the Ark of the Covenant. In the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh Kodeshim, on top of the ark is the mercy seat. And inside the ark is the Ten Commandments. Mercy and truth meet together. God's Shekinah glory in the presence there. Sprinkled seven times with the blood on Yom Kippur for the cleansing. And so right there, it's manifested. In another place, beautifully manifested, this mercy and truth, this righteousness and peace, is at Calvary. Both there. God's mercy poured out, and Yeshua being that substitute for us, in taking our punishment, and taking our guilt, and taking our sins upon himself, and nailing it there, and burying it there. But still truth. Because if he didn't have to maintain his truth, if he could just do away with his law, if he could say there's no more law, there's no more sin, there's no more unrighteousness, there's no more need of the law, then he wouldn't have to die. Because where there's no law, there's no condemnation. There's no sin. But he couldn't do away with his law. Because it's truth. And it's right. And it needs to be maintained. And the punishment needs to be maintained. So he became the punishment for us. Taking his mercy, manifesting his mercy, demonstrating his mercy towards us by maintaining truth. And then inviting us to accept it too. By also dying, we have to die to receive his peace. The right way, the right offering. And that's how God manifests towards us. That's God's plan for us. That's God's love demonstrated and given towards us. And how he manifested it towards Cain, who rejected him, rejected him, rejected him, and even killed one of God's children. How do we react? How do we respond? I was thinking of a situation this week in preparation for this where there was this couple in the past who uh, did some hurt to, to me, uh, more to God's work, not about me. Then one day, they had some young children, Then one day I ran into their children, children were now adults, and I ran into them and, and I, I noticed them first, and I went over, greeted them, talked to them, as if nothing happened. I mean, technically I had nothing against them, and I thought, boy, that was pretty righteous, right? I could give that as an example. Right? Here I was, nice to the children. Because usually, you know, when we're angry at someone, we're angry at everyone who knows that person, everyone who's friendly to that person, right? Like Saul was to, to, uh, to those who gave bread to David. Oh, you're friends of David. Oh, you fed David. I'm going to kill you then. And he killed all of them. Because that's how we normally do it in our natural, normal state. 
But would I do the same thing to the parents? If I ran into them, you know, elevator door opens and there they are. I don't know how I'd respond, but maybe by God's grace. I'd be willing to talk to them just like I talked to the children. Just like God talked to Cain. Because it's not about us. When we sin, we hurt God. That's who we sin against. And so their actions, their choices, was really against God. So how would we respond? How would we respond? And how do we respond when people do stuff against us? Think of the pain that Adam and Eve went through here, losing the child, and then losing the other child as well. How would we respond if someone took one of our children's lives? Mark Finley was visiting Rwanda, doing a series of meetings there after the attempted genocide of the Hutus over the Tutsis back in the 1990s. And he was speaking with one of his hosts and he said, did you lose anyone at that time? And the man said, yes, I was preaching that day when uh, came out over the radio, go cut down the tall trees and the massacre began. They're just going through the country, a million people being hacked to death in nine months time. Bodies piled up, stacked up high, left there for the dogs to come and eat. Bodies were thrown into the river, clogging the rivers like a beaver dam. He said, I was preaching that day and the militia came into where I was and grabbed a hold of my wife and my children and slaughtered them. And then Mark asked another man there, another guest, did you lose anyone? And he said, yes, I lost my wife and seven children. He asked his driver, did you lose anyone? He said, yes, they killed 47 of my family members. I'm the only one to survive. But they said, but that's nothing. You need to meet Miss Selfu. We think she'll tell you her story. And so they brought her, brought Mark to her house. And there was a picture on the wall of her husband, who was a minister. And he asked her if she would be willing to tell him the story. And she said, yes, I, I want to tell the story. There were 60 of us. We heard the militants were coming. We ran. We hid in the basement of a church. We thought that they would leave us alone. They would pass by. But no, they came into the church. They came down to the basement. About 200 people they began hacking away. This young man, he took a machete and hit my husband right next to me, holding hands, hit him right in the forehead. Blood splattered all over me. And then he hit me in the head. And she pulled back her hair and Mark could see a scar all the way across her head. And then he hit me in the hand and she hold, held up her limp wrist. And then he hit me in the shoulder and she pulled back her shirt and 
You can see the scar there as well. They killed 45 of us. 15 were able to escape. I went unconscious, unconscious, and went in and out of consciousness over the next three days, laying there with dead bodies. Eventually, the militants went on, and the villagers came to bury the bodies, and one of them noticed that I still had a heartbeat, even though I was unconscious at that time. They brought me to a hospital, and three years it took me to recover. At the end of the three years, and I still have a hand and a limp and scars and emotional pain, I decided, do I want to live with anger and with bitterness the rest of my life? Or do I want the transforming power of God to work in my heart and give me the ability to love my enemies as myself? She said they had set up 19 prisons throughout the country just for the murderers. And there was one near her town, so she decided to go and minister to the prisoners there. She brought them blankets and food, began studying the Bible with these murderers. And then one day as she was there, a young man came up to her and fell at her feet. I said, do you recognize me? That face was ingrained in her mind. It was the young man who killed her husband and hit her and tried to kill her. And he said, can you forgive me? said, by God's grace, I can't forgive you. And she embraced him. And over the span of several months studying the Bible with him, he surrendered his heart to the Lord. And in front of all the prisoners, he confessed his sins and was immersed in the Lord. A few years later, such a transformation had taken place in his life he was let out on an early parole. But his parents had died during the war and he had nowhere to go. So she said to Mark, so I adopted him. Would you like to meet him? Mark said, yeah. She called him and Lewis came out of the back room a transformed man, not a face of fallen countenance, not a face of anger, not a face of a murderer anymore, but transformed. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And Miss Elfu went over and embraced him and said, this is my son, Lewis. The power and the mercy of God. That's what God wants to do in our lives. Now, God doesn't call all of us to go into that situation and that type of thing. Uh, we shouldn't put ourselves in danger unnecessarily. Don't go back into an abusive relationship. Don't continue to be abused. 
But from a safe place, we can manifest love. From a safe place, we can manifest mercy. From a safe place, we can manifest forgiveness and offer it to those who've hurt God and have hurt us in the process. Nothing is impossible with God. And so how is it with you? As we prepare to pray, if you're needing God's mercy, if you've been resisting God in maybe just one area of your life, maybe not surrendered in just one area, not willing to give the right sacrifice in that area yourself, not willing to surrender all to him, not willing to allow the blood of Yeshua to cover that area of your life, to wash it clean, and to give you victory. Because God promises you shall overcome it. So if God's bringing some area to your life, maybe some anger, maybe some bitterness, maybe some resentment, resentfulness, maybe fears, insecurities, maybe an attitude of victimhood, we're all victims. We've all been victimized. But we have a gracious Savior who's paid the price for us and has redeemed us and is able to heal us. So if you're holding it on to some bitterness or anger or rage or victimhood, or give it over to the Lord and surrender it in a moment when we pray. Secondly, if God has put you in a place where he's calling you to manifest mercy towards someone else, someone's coming to your mind, someone's, God's bringing someone's face to your mind, someone's name to your mind, that God wants you to manifest mercy towards them, to offer them the gift of salvation, to tell them about God's love. In a moment we pray, ask God to give you the grace to forgive them. It comes from God. The ability to forgive is not from you. It's from God. Not some wishy-washy forgiveness that says it's okay. No, forgiveness that's justice and mercy. That says what you did was wrong, but choose not to be angry about it. God's calling you to manifest love and forgiveness towards someone. In a moment we pray, Ask God to give you the ability to forgive them and to love them. God is long-suffering, not wanting that any should perish. God wants to use us in mourning the world. God is impressing your heart and mind with a ministry that he's calling you to, maybe just this week, maybe to pass out some flyers. We've got the holidays coming up. We've got lots of flyers to pass out. We got an event taking place in another couple of weeks, lots of flyers to pass out. Maybe God's impressing your heart in some way to get the message out there to the world. Maybe to tell them about Shalom Adventure magazine, or maybe, maybe God's broadcasting it through your social media sites, or however, God's impressing your mind. Maybe there's some ministry close by God's impressing you to be involved with. Maybe there's a specific person that God's bringing to your mind. 
that he wants you to call, write to, go and talk to, present the gospel to. In a moment when we pray, ask God to give you the grace and the words for God to go before you, to soften their heart and to prepare them to receive God's truth. And so if any of those areas apply to you, or maybe some other area God's been speaking to your heart and mind about, well, let's let God, let's surrender to him, let him do his work in our hearts and minds. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, well, it's an amazing story what you've done in the heart of Mrs. Selflu. It's what you've done for us as we've murdered your son, as he's given his life for us and as he continues to come after us and continues to draw us and that you want to adopt us and that you want us to bring us into your home, even though we've murdered you, even though we've rejected you, even though we've lied, even though we've been in denial. Lord, give us the gift of repentance. Give us the gift of conviction. Give us the gift of conversion. Give us the ability to surrender. Thank you, Yeshua, for dying for us and taking those sins. Fill us with your spirit and live in us and out of us. Give us the power to forgive others. We surrender all the anger and all the bitterness and all the hurt. We surrender it to you. Thank you for bearing it. Thank you for taking it. Give us mercy and love towards others. Fill us with your spirit and live in us and out of us, in word and in deed, that other people will be in heaven as a result of our lives here on this earth. In Yeshua's holy name. Amen.